When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, a quick disclosure before we start. We are talking about the Writers Guild of America strike in today's episode, and Slate's staff journalists, like me, are part of the WGA. We're not striking, though. It's just the television and screenwriters. We are not covered under their contract. Okay, here's the show. I think of my friend Michelle Dean as someone who has made it. She's a journalist and a screenwriter, and she wrote a big deal TV show. I'm the co-creator of The Act, which was a limited series on Hulu that aired in 2019. It told the story of Gypsy Rose Blanchard um, and her mother, Dee Dee Blanchard. Oh, sweet pea. I know sometimes you want to be like everybody else, but you know what? <laughs> I like you special. Dee Dee had what's known as Munchausen's by proxy. She abused Gypsy for years, pretending that the girl was sick, taking her to doctor after doctor or for treatment after treatment. Gypsy eventually struck back by having her boyfriend kill her mother. The act is a fictionalized version of their real life. Gypsy is now serving prison time. Michelle first wrote a viral BuzzFeed news story about the family in 2016 then developed it into the act. The show was a big success, nominated for a slew of awards. Patricia Arquette won both an Emmy and a Golden Globe for her performance as Dee Dee. All I know about the success of the show is that Hulu told us it was very successful in numbers and also told the press that, like, you know, it drove subscriptions more than any other show that they'd ever made. But for Michelle, the years of work were not as lucrative as you might expect. It was money that by, you know, three or four months after the show had aired was mostly gone. Now she's part of the writer's strike. Michelle says she does fine. And again, she's one of the successful ones. But Michelle is worried about what's happening to the kind of work and pay that's available for writers in Hollywood. I think that the struggle that we're involved in is not so different from the struggle of the average American worker. The days of network shows that aired seemingly endlessly are gone. What used to be jobs that paid enough for, say, to buy a house somewhere, right? Or even, frankly, to not worry about making rent, um, have become gig jobs, right? Um, Much as many jobs in America have. Today on the show, it's the streaming era now. Technology has remade TV and movies and how the people behind them get paid. Why that is so important and why it's ground Hollywood to a halt. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. 
That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. If you write for TV or film like Michelle, your life is a lot less predictable than someone who has a regular salaried job. You might write for a season or a limited run and then live on that money until the next season or until you can find work again. The pay rates can vary a lot, and the Writers Guild of America sets minimum pay guidelines every three years. This year, the WGA and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which represents the studios and streaming companies, could not reach a deal. I asked Anusha Sakui, who covers entertainment for the LA Times, to walk me through what the Writers Guild is asking for. So they have a suite of proposals that basically target pay and conditions that are really around uh, streaming. Um, there's a there's a request for higher minimum wages higher residuals, which are a form of royalty for when your show or film is re-aired, re-shown. They want some of the modes of work that have evolved during streaming to change. Um, They want to have a sort of certain number of writers in a writer's room. They want them to be employed for certain amounts of, you know, for minimum amounts of time. And then they want some of the general things like improvements to pension and health care, and they also want to regulate artificial intelligence. I think there's about 21 different proposals that I've, I've seen. And uh, there is a big gap, it seems, between them and the AMPTP, which is the body that negotiates on behalf of the studios. And what is the studio response? The studio response has been, you know, to paraphrase, uh, that they, you know, they want to reach a deal, but... Um, they felt that there were some big sticking points, namely um, what they call mandatory staffing and the minimum length of employment as being, you know, big sticking points that, that, that created too big a gulf between the two sides to reach a deal. And, and I think surprisingly on Monday night when the talks were going down to the wire, which was expected, uh, what was surprising is that they ended, you know, a few hours before the actual deadline of midnight. You know, and I think that 
is a reflection of just how far apart the two sides are. Oh, that they were just sort of like, there's no point in in going down to the wire. We're not going to bridge that gap. That's what it seems like. That's how it reads. The last time that the WGA called a strike was in 2007, and streaming was barely a thing, though the writers were worried about the technology's potential. Today, streaming is king. In July, streaming services drew more viewers than cable for the first time ever. Maybe this is a really simplistic question, but I feel like it might be worth asking for people who are less aware of the sort of business models in Hollywood. The last strike in 2007 seems worlds away from how we consume entertainment now. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how the business model has changed. So back in 2007, 2008, that strike went on for 100 days. It was very painful for uh, many of the creators and also the local economy, you know, billions of dollars it was estimated to have cost in terms of wages and lost business. At that time, Netflix was still doing DVD by mail. Hulu didn't exist. Even streaming as we know it today with the past couple of years where we've seen big movies, big Disney movies ending up on streaming for a premium price. No one thought even just a couple of years ago before the pandemic that that was going to be, that was something the studios wanted, you know, but but didn't think it was going to be possible to accelerate streaming that fast. And and the pandemic did accelerate uh, really our consumption of of TV and film over over the internet. Then, back in 2007 2007 and 2008, the Writers Guild was just wanting to have some jurisdiction over the internet. It was an unknown quantity then, and the studio's argument was, you know, this is something we don't know what what it can be. We obviously don't necessarily want to pay a huge amount for it, but the Writers Guild argued that they, with that strike, they successfully got um, jurisdiction over the internet to be able to get paid for um, episodes of TV and, and film that were viewed that way. And I think there's an interesting parallel to now of, of like trying to get ahead of a technology then as uh, with, say, artificial intelligence now, which is one of the proposals that the WGA is, is wanting to regulate in this round, you know, trying to get ahead of, uh, of technology. That seems to be a bit of a theme. The WGA had, had a statement that that said the companies have used the transition to streaming to cut writer pay and separate writing from production, worsening working conditions for series writers at all levels. And I guess I wonder if you could sort of illustrate for me what life is like as a writer. Like, what what would life be like if you were writing on a network series in 2006 versus writing on a streaming series now? There's lots of ways that it's different, Um Let's just talk about the format. Traditional broadcast, uh, t- you know, network TV show would be 22, 24 episodes, and a writer working on one of those shows would be employed for about 10 months. So they would have, you know, almost full-time employment. They would know that they would be earning enough to make their health insurance. You know, if they were paid weekly or by episode, um, which varies according to uh, your seniority in the writer's room, you knew that there would be enough episodes for you to earn uh, enough money and there would be you'd be working enough weeks if you were paid weekly with the advent of streaming uh the model of television has changed you know night and day almost um in some regards uh you know the 
the quality uh, of the t- of television. Obviously, we were in this sort of second golden age of TV. But on the flip side, streaming companies particularly have developed have sort of popularized a shift to shorter orders of series, so eight or ten episodes, mm. and they've popularized um, something called mini rooms, which are small gatherings of writers, small groups of writers that have to thrash out the storyline and episodes over a short period of time before it's even greenlit. Back in time, you know, you'd have a pilot that would be filmed and then and then a show would pick it up and then and then they'd go to work on a show throughout throughout its production. And now it's not clear that you don't know if you're writing on a show whether or not that show will even get made. So you're effectively now as a writer getting paid getting hired and paid for shorter periods of time. So they're having to chase more and more of these jobs. And because there are only small rooms, even though it's like, you know, there's been peak TV and there's a lot of TV, there's only small groups of them being hired. Um, And like you were saying, one of the downsides of that is uh, writers argue that they don't get promoted, they don't get the experience of having, you know, worked on production, um, so they they can't rise up the ranks, hmm. there, and they, you know, there's, so their salaries don't rise in the same way. Is it a decent living? What kind, what, what kind of salaries are we talking about? The WGA has put out some numbers around earnings, as a whole, you know, as a whole membership. Um, and they've said, you know, in the past couple of years, uh, earnings have decreased, you know, several percent. But if you look at, you know, the argument from the studios will be that if you look at what the minimum pay is, it's not minimum wage, it's what the minimum pay is for a staff writer, which is the lowest rank. You know, it's in the thousands per week, you know, $4,000, I think something like that, you know, what some of the more senior rank, $7,000 a week. I'm being very approximate here. To maybe most people that would sound like a lot of money, but what would happen is that you would maybe work, if you're working in a mini room, you know, the WGA said that you're only working maybe 10 weeks, 14 weeks, and then you have to pay, you know, a certain percentage of that towards your agents, your lawyers, um, taxes, the like, um, that would you, and then you might have to stretch that job out for a year. So it it's not necessarily that lucrative. You know, lots of writers that I've spoken to talk about having second jobs, whether that's in copywriting or, you know, I spoke to Adam Conover yesterday on the sides of the picket line outside Netflix on their first day of picketing. He's in the he's a writer on the negotiating committee. He talks about, you know, he's a he's a comedian, stand-up yeah. comedian when he's not writing and uh, making YouTube videos. So I think that's the problem is that a lot of writers find that they are having to stretch that money over a longer period of time. It's so interesting because it's such a gap, I think, between the consumer perception of the streaming era where there's so much stuff out there. There's an embarrassment of riches. But from your description of how that translates to a writer's existence, it's like they're scrapping for this little bit here and then this one over here with no guarantee that those things are going to continue into a few seasons, that you know, m- might have been the model if you were writing for a network show in the 90s. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've heard stories of, uh, you know, the royalties, the residuals from a show, um, a popular show, you know, from, from the broadcast network days, you know, being able to pay for your wedding and honeymoon for it, or if you've got, you know, a very lavish one, like in the thousands, um, or, you know, people talk about, their their older peers um, or their the elders in their industry being able to buy houses uh, in in 
fancy areas in uh, LA and, and and the middle class of jobbing right are now struggling to buy a house. And I think this is one of the issues is the rising cost of living in LA. And, you know, uh, it's not just LA, you know, I have to stress that as well, where these, these workers are across the country now with hubs, New York, New Jersey, Georgia, New Mexico. But uh, obviously a lot of writers are based in Southern California and it's expensive. When we come back, does anyone really understand the streaming business? Hi, I'm Jeremy Stahl. I'm Slate's jurisprudence editor. Ordinarily, I edit our courts and legal coverage from the comfort of my home office in Los Angeles. But for the next month and a half, I will be locked in a lower Manhattan courtroom with the rest of the press, a jury of 12 New Yorkers, Justice Juan Marchand, prosecutors, Trump's defense team, and the former president himself as history unfolds. I've temporarily moved myself and my family from Los Angeles to New York to cover this case firsthand, like I have done in other cases, including the Paul Manafort case, the Roger Stone criminal trial, and Donald Trump's first impeachment. I'm hoping that my background knowledge of the many, many criminal travails of our former president can offer something to you, Slate's listener. Over the next several weeks, you'll be hearing from me on Amicus, Slate's legal podcast, and in articles on Slate.com. From the jury selection to the opening arguments to the witness testimony and cross-examination and the prosecution's case and the defense's case and ultimately to a final verdict. We will be providing you wall-to-wall coverage throughout the entirety of the trial as it unfolds from the courtroom. There's no way I'd be able to do it without the support of Slate Plus. So if you're not already a subscriber, please join today by clicking Try Free at the top of the Amicus show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash amicus plus to get access wherever you listen. Thank you so, so much. You know, this is a show that focuses on technology, and I I wonder if you think it's overblown to say that this this strike, these negotiations are, are all about technology. I don't think it's overblown to say it's all about technology. I think it's uh, streaming has upended the economics of Hollywood uh, in many different ways. And it has been happening for a while now. The writers had their last negotiation for a contract back in 2020. And because of the pandemic, they didn't really have leverage to stop production or do anything like that to fight for improvements then. So they've really had to take this opportunity to, I guess, put their foot down if they wanted to, um, which they have, I guess, by going out on strike. And, you know, artificial intelligence is the latest form of, of technology that is that is seeking to upend the way of work. Some of it's basic, it's like minimum pay. And so it's to do with um, inflation and, and where the economy is and, you know, accelerating uh, rental rates in LA. Um, but a, a lot of the proposals are around modes of work and pay that have changed because of the way streaming companies have changed the business. The writers also argue that the way that streaming companies calculate their pay feels like a confusing black box. Anusha says it's a real shift from the broadcast era. One way is you don't have the same transparency 
on viewership. That's been sort of like a, a big problem for creators that they don't have the same view of how well maybe their 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 production is being viewed. They're not paid uh, when it comes to residuals in streaming according to viewership. It's a function of the size of the streaming company. So for example, Netflix, which has a lot of subscribers, uh, a lot more than Apple will pay more than Apple, even though Apple has very deep pockets compared to Netflix. So that's, you know, one bugbear for writers. And that is also one proposal is that, you know, they wanted residuals that might be linked to viewership. I spoke to one writer who worked on Bridgerton and didn't feel like her... um, residuals from that show, which was a hit show, were reflective of its success compared to when she's worked on network shows that weren't as popular, but she got paid a lot more. And then what happened in the past, I want to call it 10 years, it's not that recent, but you had studios creating their own content and then distributing that content by having their own streaming platforms. When it comes to how much they're paid in residuals, And not just in residuals, actually, how much they're paid for their content generally. Often the calculation is based on a license fee. How much is it to license the content that's produced by the studio? And the studio could be the same as a distributor in this case. How much that license fee is to distribute it? And if you're both the producer of the content and the distributor, there have been questions and arguments about what that fee should be. The WGA had a successful arbitration against Netflix actually last August, uh, where they got tens of millions of dollars um, in uh, on what they said were residuals that should have been paid. So there is a bit of lack of understanding or lack of transparency into the process now around um, producers and, and, and distributors, because often they're the same. I think you're sort of opening the door for for me to ask a question on the other side of this, which is, do, do the studios understand the business model themselves? Because, you know, we sort of saw this last year when it was clear that the the bet on streaming for some of these studios and distributors was not as lucrative as they thought it would be, that they are trying to figure out this new world as well. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I was at CinemaCon just before this this strike, uh, which is a big convention in uh, Vegas, where the studios go to show their wares, their f- exciting new films to theatre owners across the country. And before the pandemic, there was a big, often a cloud over this conference because studios wanted their content in home sooner and theatres wanted to survive they wanted this exclusive window where they would have movies and they knew that theatre goers would have to come to their to their uh, halls to see it. And then the pandemic happened and, you know, that was obviously devastating for theatres. Then what you're describing has happened, this sort of reversal. I think the pandemic provided some proof points to a lot of uh, studios and theatre owners as well, particularly when it comes to the distribution of film that streaming it first is not necessarily as lucrative as going to theatres. And also that, um, you know, they'd obviously all invested a lot in trying to get into this arms race, this streaming wars, um, and catch up with Netflix. And now they're having to backpedal a little. You're seeing actually massive turmoil amongst the studios in terms of, you know, thousands of layoffs from Disney, um, cutting back on production. Warner, Warner Brothers just scrapped some movies, right? 
Yeah, you know, so that that I think with um for example they were going to make Batgirl, I think yeah. that's right that they um and they they even though it was made, they it was scrapped and that's very frustrating for creators uh that you hear a lot from writers that they work on shows that that never end up getting getting greenlit. Part of that I'm sure is is just part of the business, you know. Um but there is definitely this pullback. I mean, it's it's been recorded in terms of the amount of production in LA has fallen in the past, you know, recent quarters. Part of that is anticipation of the labor action, uh, no one wanting to start production, but part of it is also this pulling back um, on the amount um, that studios are investing in content. I'm trying to understand the studio position to some degree because I, there's this part of me that's wondering, like, what's more expensive for them in the long run? Is it is it more expensive to kind of concede agree to the writer's demands, go forward with this new contract, or see a bunch of things mothballed and potentially lose viewers to other forms of content that don't require a a union contract, that aren't scripted entertainment. Like, isn't there a, a potential cost to that as well? On one side, there's a potential benefit to the studios from a strike. Uh, if you believe um, some Wall Street analysts, because they might not have to spend the money to produce things. They might be able to end unattractive, to them, unattractive deals with writers that are not lucrative enough. And they're under pressure. Uh, Warner Brothers Discovery, uh, Paramount, um, uh, were some of the names that, that were highlighted by Rich Greenfield, a media analyst out there, as being the studios that could benefit from cutting back at, through, you know, that would might benefit yeah. better that in a strike, um, you know, cutting back spending and, and helping improve their balance sheet. But on the flip side, the WGA argues that, you know, these studios are under pressure to keep eyeballs, uh, keep audiences, to reduce churn. And if this goes on long enough, then, you know, come the fourth season, will we have, you know, the newest seasons of our our favorite shows and if you don't then why are we paying for you know all these streaming um you know subscriptions so i think there is there is going to be that pressure wall street is watching subscriber numbers so um there's an argument on both sides but there's only so much people are going to watch in terms of repeats i mean we know the late night shows have gone dark yeah. and, and are being replaced by repeats we know that unscripted reality television which is not uh, under the jurisdiction of the WGA can continue and you know the studios will lean into that but prestige drama is you know succession game of thrones these are all things that create water cooler moments that people keep subscribing for and that's going to be important to the studios and of course ai has made its way into these negotiations much like the writers were beginning to worry about streaming in 2007 and 8 the writers are now concerned about the role AI might play in the future. I've got a document from the WGA that sort of laid out their asks and what the studios responded. And to be uh, sure, we don't know at what point in time this these asks are and what the counters were. And we, we've only got the WGA side of this. The, the, the AMPTP hasn't commented on it. But they said, like you were saying, that they wanted to, uh, you know, regulate AI and, you know, it can't write or rewrite uh, material that uh, is is the basis of, 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 of covered work, is how they describe it. So 
anything that's the basis of of a TV show or film, AI can't be used for it. And also um, MBA-covered material. So, you know, you can't feed Game of Thrones into AI to try and get something, you know, Game of Thrones 2 out of it. Huh, okay. They said that the AMPTP rejected their proposal and countered by offering annual meetings to discuss advancements in technology, which to some I know was a bit of an insult. That seems, you know, obviously that they're not really willing to engage in regulating it or putting limits on it. That's where things were when the talks broke down, it seems. Do you think it's possible that the studio was just saying, hey, look, we have no idea, we're just keeping our options open? I think that's probably, that is probably it. Uh, and, and then in that way, it is an interesting parallel to 07 and 08 where it's unclear what AI is going to do. So maybe they don't want to put limits on it, but the writers are worried that it will be used to uh, take away their jobs. So they they do want to regulate it. It's hard to know at this stage what AI is going to be capable of because I've seen plenty of examples myself of people trying to generate things out of chat GBT and it's not copyrightable from what some people tell me, although I'm sure that will be a big legal fight at some point. It doesn't seem to be that great, the content. And, and you know, people have talked about issues of plagiarism and that it actually feeds off, you know, stuff that already exists. So yeah. writers work. So it's hard to see how how you could get anything valuable from it, but who knows where where the advances might might go? You know, as I said, who would have known what streaming could have been in, in 07, 08? So that's, I think, what writers are concerned about. They definitely want to get ahead of it. The last strike lasted some 100 days. And I wonder, in the conversations you're having on, on both sides of this issue, how long are people prepared to fight? Um, I spoke to... Ellen Stutzman, the chief negotiator yesterday on the picket line outside of Netflix. And I asked that question and she said, um, you know, as long as it takes to get a fair deal, that could be a long time from them. Anusha Sakui, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me on. Anusha Sakui is an entertainment industry reporter for the LA Times. Michelle Dean is a journalist and screenwriter. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Shannon Pallas. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. And we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you are a fan of this show, the best way to support us is to become a Slate Plus member. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. You'll get all your Slate podcasts ad-free. All right, we'll be back on Sunday with another episode. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.